When we think about uh, child development, obviously asking good questions is essential to that and just kind of wrestling through important things. And many of us, for our own child development, there was a certain TV show that we may have watched with uh, to develop as, as little children, and that show was called Sesame Street. Uh, Sesame Street had a regular segment, I think continues to have a regular segment as part of their show called One of These Things. And uh, what they do as part of that segment is to put four things together, kind of in a picture or a box. And the goal of this segment is to show how one of those things does not belong with the other three. There's three of those things that are part of that that have some kind of relationship with one another. There's some kind of connection. And there's one thing that sticks out as not being like the others. And the song that goes with this, and if you know the song, I'm sorry for the rest of your afternoon. Um, but uh, the song goes, one of these things is not like the other. One of these things just doesn't belong. And in a series on the attributes of God, we're essentially applying that tune. When we think about the attributes of God and who he is, and then we compare ourselves with that glorious, infinite, transcendent God, it shouldn't take us long to be able to say, one of these things is not like the other. And one of these things just doesn't belong. As we're in this series on God's attributes, last week we, we began it by discussing several of God's incommunicable attributes. When we use that word incommunicable, what we mean is that those are attributes of God that he does not share with us. He is transcendent over all things. He is, we, we mentioned last week that he is independent, that he is unchangeable, that he is eternal, and he is unified. And as we, it's right for us to go through the attributes of God during Advent, during the Christmas season, because while he is transcendent, he is other than us. There is a a giant distinction between the creator and the creation. But yet during Advent, we think about how God came to us. Again, Emmanuel, God with us. When God sends, when God the Father sent his eternal son to become the God-man, he brings his attributes close. The transcendent God is made knowable through the eternal son of God. God in the flesh, God with us. We see that in Jesus, we see the attributes of God on complete, on complete display to show us the character of God, but also to accomplish the divine plan, to, to be that bridge that, that brings us back to that righteous, transcendent God. He is so majestic. He is so supreme over all things. But now for the next several weeks, we're going to talk about several of God's communicable attributes. Communicable. These are the attributes that he shares with his people. While we will never express these things perfectly or fully as God does, still these are attributes that are lived out through our lives so that we might reflect God our Father. Bernie Simmons, one of our uh, former pastors and one of our current elders, uh, reminded me that this is similar to the moon reflecting the light from the sun. The moon does not produce light in and of itself. It is a mere reflection of the sun that does have light, that produces light and shines brightly. And the moon then reflects it. Similarly for us with God's attributes, we do not produce these attributes in and of ourselves. We are mere reflections of the divine. We do not become God. We are, again, distinct from the, uh, from the creator. We are distinct from God. And yet we still reflect him in his attributes as the moon reflects the sun. 
Now, the the attribute that we're going to talk about this morning, we would be tempted to place in the incommunicable attributes. We would be tempted to place this attribute in in such a way that, that sets God completely apart from us. And at one level, we would be right. And oftentimes when this attribute has been discussed or taught, or when I use it often on a Sunday morning, I use it in such a way to distinguish us from God of how he is different than us. And yet... He shares this attribute with us. The attribute we're talking about this morning is God's holiness. God is holy. And in light of his holiness, what we'll see today, again, why we would be tempted to place this in a way of saying, well, God is holy, I am not. And in one level, that is true. But what we'll see is that we are called to be a holy people who live a holy life because God is holy. We reflect this in our lives. Now, before we get into the heart of the sermon today, we need to define holiness. Maybe you've heard me say God is holy or we've talked about the holiness of God and you still aren't sure. Well, what does that actually mean? Well, one theologian, Greg Allison, simply defines holiness this way. He says, holiness is the divine attribute signifying that God is exalted above creation and is absolutely morally pure. God is exalted above creation and is, and is absolutely morally pure. That's what it means to say that God is holy. And we often discuss this in such a way that, that, that shows that he is completely set apart from creation, that he is, that he is unique, that, and that, that especially we as sinful creatures, it doesn't take us long to recognize our lack of holiness, and we see that distinction. But God's holiness sets him apart in his essence and in his morality. He is exalted and he is perfectly morally Pure. But as we'll see today, while we would be tempted to see this giant chasm, and we will, but through Christmas, God makes his holiness known. If you're following on your worship program today, you'll, you'll see that our main idea is this, that Christmas, Christmas declares that we can share in the extraordinary holiness of God. Christmas declares that we can share in the extraordinary holiness of God. As we consider God's holiness today, we'll see how, how he is entirely different than us. And yet through sending his one and only son, the eternal son of God in perfect holiness, that he brings his holy presence to us. And then we'll, we'll recognize how we can be grafted into that holiness with a new identity so that we might live holy lives as well. But we'll begin with a simple and yet monumental truth. Number one, God is holy and we are not. God is holy, and we are not. To demonstrate this, we need to turn no further than one of the most famous passages in all of Scripture, Isaiah 6, verses 1 through 7. But before we read that, I, I want to give a little background or context to that passage. One of the dangers of parachuting into a, a text by itself is that we don't get the right and appropriate context for what we're reading. But in verse 1 of Isaiah 6, we read about King Uzziah, that he, had, that he passed away. Well, we know, need to know a little bit about who King Uzziah was. His, his life is described in 2 Chronicles 26. You can go read that whole chapter to get the, a little bit of background on his life. But he became king at just 16 years old. Just 16 when he became king. And he reigned on the throne for 52 years. And Uzziah had a faithful beginning. 
things started well. And at, and at 16, you can um, imagine him being 16 and being king over God's people and saying, I don't feel like I have the power to do this. There's a measure of humility that would come over somebody who's young, who's, who's beginning a role in such difficulty. And we read of this in 2 Chronicles. It says this, And he did what was right in the eyes of the Lord, according to all his father Amaziah had done. He set himself to seek God in the days of Zechariah, who instructed him in the fear of God. And as long as he sought the Lord, God made him prosper. What a great reminder. What a great reminder for any of us, but especially young people or anyone who feels like they're in a, a role, a relationship, a capacity that says, I don't have the power to do this. That's a good feeling because what it does is that it requires that we rely on God in the midst of great challenges. The problem, however, is when we begin to get comfortable. See, as a leader... There's, you know, you begin a role and every once in a while you feel overwhelmed by the capacity of that role. But then you have a couple of successes. You make a good hire, you make a good decision. You don't get that critical email you're used to getting. And then all of a sudden you think, you know what, I can do this. I, I, I kind of know what I'm doing. I'm starting to feel a little bit comfortable. But the, the, the problem that comes there as it came through Uzziah is that we begin to trust in ourselves to carry it through, not the Lord. Look at how, so Uzziah starts well, but then he gets comfortable and notice this. It says this in verse 16, but when he was strong, he grew proud to his destruction. For he was unfaithful to the Lord, his God, and entered the temple of the Lord to burn incense on the altar of incense. Uzziah in his pride began to trust himself and then he, he, he offered an unlawful wrong sacrifice. But he was trusting in himself and not the Lord. And the, God, and the Lord judged him. The Lord judged him by giving him leprosy. He plagued him with leprosy. So in a way of totally signaling Uzziah's lack of holiness... That, that he did not treat the Lord as holy as he ought. That the Lord then plagued him with leprosy and cast him out. Uzziah then spent the rest of his days no longer going in and out of the temple of the Lord. He spent the rest of his days in a totally separate house apart from the community because leprosy was one of the clearest ways to signify that somebody was unclean, unholy, and could not be in the presence of God. And despite that, though, as he died, remember, he was on the throne 52 years. The people would have wondered at his death, oh, no, what's happened to our leader? He didn't end all that well, and, but yet still good things happened. But now there was some concern about what would have happened to the nation. And it's in that context that Isaiah sees this. Isaiah 6, verse 1. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon the throne high and lifted up. And the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two he covered his face and with two he covered his feet. And with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called. And the house was filled with smoke. And I said, woe is me. For I am lost and I am a man of unclean lips and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar and he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin 
atone for. How amazing is that text? See, the people of Jerusalem were, would have been nervous about what was happening, that their king would, was died, had died. But now Isaiah got this private viewing into the throne room of heaven where they are crying out, holy, holy, holy. This is an amazing description. We see first that his throne is high and lifted up above all things. He's exalted. Remember, being holy is to be exalted over, over everything. We don't get the idea that this is just like some kind of chair on the ground and that people are just around him. No, he is lifted up above everything else. The train of his robe filled the temple. I've done quite a few weddings in my ministry, but I've not yet seen a train that carries from this stage out the doors. If you watched King Charles' coronation in May, you didn't see a train that filled that whole space. If you watch the Netflix series, The Crown, or you have seen videos of Queen Elizabeth and her uh, train of, and her coronation, you never saw anything quite like that description. We're unaware of what that really would feel like. But his whole glory filled everything. The seraphim needs six wings. Two just to cover their face. They cannot behold this glory. Two to cover their feet to recognize that they're on holy ground. Think back to Exodus chapter 3 where God speaks to Moses through the burning bush and he says, take off your feet, Moses, for you're standing on holy ground. There's something about even our feet that require a measure of reverence. And with two, they fly. But what's amazing about the seraphim is not what they do, it's what they say. Holy Holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. See, if you're so familiar with the Bible that that text bores you, you need to read that verse about a million times this week. Holy, holy, holy. This passage and one like it in Revelation chapter 4 verse 8 are the only passages in the Bible with this kind of repetitive superlative language. Most theologians would note that this is the highest superlative form we can find because there is no one like the Lord. This is, this is greater than any kind of superlative we might find in a high school yearbook. I don't care if you were voted most likely to succeed or best dressed. Holy, holy, holy is, is beyond compare. One theologian would say it's not that God is just a little bit holy. God is really, really, really holy. God is exalted over all creation and perfect in his moral purity. There is no one like God. And it doesn't take us long, however, to read this and to recognize that we are not holy compared to God's infinite holiness. And this is Isaiah's uh, response as well. Look at verse 5. He says, woe is me, woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. When Isaiah recognizes the holiness of God, he can't help but be overwhelmed by his own lack of holiness. He, he recognizes that he is unclean, and the people, the culture that he dwells in, is also unclean. He's terrified when he beholds the holiness of God. And he says, I'm unclean. To be unclean is essentially the opposite of being holy. Maybe for us, we feel that. Maybe there's just this nagging sense in our lives that something's not quite right. That we're not quite pure. Or 
Or even we try, or maybe we try to compare our holiness to others and say, well, at least I'm a little bit more holy than that guy. But, but friend, a little cancer is still cancer. A little unholiness is still unholiness. Don't bother trying to compare your, your uh, greater holiness than somebody else because any measure of, only, of unholiness sets us apart from the holy, righteous, holy, holy, holy God. Because we're not. And see, even recognize how, how in light of Isaiah's sin and his uncleanness that he needs his sin atoned for. The, the seraphim comes and atones for his sin. This is a holy God. So we need to ask ourselves, though, in light of that holiness, in light of our recognition of lack thereof, that we are not holy, how will God relate to his people? But we need to first begin to, to, by recognizing that this is not as it was designed. The relationship that God created humanity to have with him was not supposed to have this chasm of holiness. In the Garden of Eden, Adam and Eve enjoyed a perfect relationship with God and with one another. They didn't even need clothes because things were so great and holy. There was nothing that separated their relationship. And, and again, imagine that just the perfect relationship that Adam and Eve had with one another in light of the holiness that they were sharing with God. But when they sinned, when Adam and Eve ate of the fruit of the tree that they were commanded not to eat from, they immediately became ashamed because shame is always the result of a lack of holiness. Shame is always the result of sin that enters into the relationship. So they, they hid first from themselves and they recognize we're naked. We need to cover ourselves. We're all of a sudden, we, there's something about us that's not right. There's something about the, us that's unclean. We need to hide that. And then they hid from the Lord. So when he comes to walk with them in the cool of the day, he says, where are you? It's not as it was designed. Human sin always separates us from the holiness and moral perfection of God. So what's God going to do now? But see, God continues to relate. God continues to pursue unholy people always through the sacrifice. Always through the sacrifice. In the garden, he even provided a sacrifice of skins for Adam and Eve so that they might clothe themselves, so they might be back in relationship with him. And then even in, with Abraham, something prior to the Old Testament law, Abraham relates with God through the a sacrificial system. God then provides the law and the temple with these uh, amazing measures in, in various courts of, of cleanliness and who can come in and who can go out. All these laws that are related to being clean or unclean and what to do when you've sinned or may come in contact with something that's unclean. And how do we kind of keep the, the, the holy one separate and the unholy ones away? No, nothing greater than the holy of holies where the presence of God dwelled and where the high priest could only go once a year. And on that day of atonement, that high priest would go into the Holy of Holies and make sacrifice uh, for the entire nation. And that was a time where, where a servant of the Lord, where the present, where the priest could be with the Lord. And still though, remember, the day of atonement was a yearly festival, a yearly sacrifice. The moment that sacrifice was made through the atonement, they all knew, I'll see you next year. We're going to have to do this day of atonement next year because we're going to sin again. And we'll have to come back and communicate that to the Lord. God relates 
to sinful people through the sacrifice. But this whole system is still continued to be built up on the idea that God is holy and we are not. But in his moral perfection and in his moral purity, he still brings his holiness close to us through his eternal holy son. And this is the miracle of Christmas. God is holy and we are not. But our second point today reveals that Jesus reveals that Jesus reveals God's holiness. Jesus in, in the, the holiness of God that is sets him so much apart from us. Jesus brings God's holiness close. And throughout the Bible, we get yes, used to God's holiness, setting us apart as sinful creatures. We know we're not like him in, in moral perfection, moral purity, and we're not set up above everything else in creation. But it's in Christmas where the Holy One comes to us. Last week we read Matthew chapter 1 in the Christmas account well, and we're reminded that his name would be Emmanuel, God with us. But how again is this holy one, this perfect one with sinful people? Well, now we turn to Luke chapter 1 verse 26 and we see this account with Mary to show us how the holy one of God came to earth as a true man. Luke 1 verse 26, in the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son and you shall call his name Jesus. And he shall be great and will be called the son of the most high. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father, David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom, there will be no end. And Mary said to the angel, how will this be since I am a virgin? And the angel answered her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. Notice that last line. This child who would be born or be conceived in Mary's womb by the Holy Spirit would be called Holy, the Son of God. This is the miracle of the virgin birth. Through the, the miraculous nature of the virgin birth, the Holy Spirit overshadows Mary and she conceives so that Jesus, the God-man, will not inherit a sinful nature like you and I. Jesus becomes a true, is a true human being and yet he maintains his holy nature through the necessity of the virgin birth. What a miracle. When you think about when the ESV study Bible summarizes this well, and they say this, though Jesus was a genuine human being, he did not inherit a sinful nature and disposition from Adam as all other beings do. And this is why the virgin birth is so necessary for Christian doctrine. And if you're here today or you're listening and you say, I just can't bring myself to believe in the virgin birth. It just seems too crazy, too miraculous. And friend, it is. That's the point. Why doubt the, 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 that God himself can do the impossible. When we've seen so many stories throughout the Bible of God opening up a barren woman's womb 
And yet, we could still say, well, there was a natural conception that took place for that child to come forth. He, he, he allowed older women to, to have children. He allowed barren women to have children. But with his divine son, he says, I see all those miracles and I'll one-up you through a virgin birth so that this man could be both the God-man, that Jesus could be holy in his essence and nature, and yet he could become one of us in his humanity. It's incredible then in Luke chapter two on how Mary and Joseph go to Jerusalem to present Jesus as a baby to the Lord in obedience to the law in Exodus 13, where it says the firstborn male who opens up uh, the, the woman's womb, he, uh, he shall be called holy. He'll be set apart. And then in Leviticus chapter 12, there are laws related to uh, becoming clean um, and going through that purity process after a woman has given birth. And Mary and Joseph are obeying this. They bring their sacrifice to the temple. And it's there that this old man, Simeon, sees them. What we read in Luke that uh, Simeon had been waiting for the consolation of Israel. He had been waiting for God's promises. And he sees Mary and Joseph with their little baby walking through the courtyard. And, he, and the Holy Spirit tells him, that's the one. That's my Messiah. And Simeon takes this child and he says this, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and glory for your people Israel. See, this God man came with a divine plan. Simeon held this holy babe in his arms and yet that was the one who would be the ultimate answer to how God would interact with unclean people. But as we read the rest of the Gospels, we might wonder, well, what does this actually look like? Well, how could a holy one interact with the uncleanliness of his culture, of his world? What, what, would he become unclean? See, the Old Testament law was built on the premise that when something holy or clean would touch something that was unholy or unclean, that which was clean would then become unclean, right? So, so notice it, the, the concern of the Old Testament was that if you're clean, if you're holy, you want to stay apart. You want to set that apart because if you come into contact with something unclean, then you'll become unclean as well. But with Jesus, he reverses that equation. Because when Jesus, the clean one, the holy one, when he touches something unclean, that which is unclean becomes clean. Jesus doesn't become unclean. We see this in Luke chapter 5 with a leper. This leper comes to Jesus. I imagine that leper had to keep a measure of distance. And, and the leper says, uh, you know, Jesus asked him, do you want to be clean? And he says, if you will, please make me clean. And we know from other passages of scripture that Jesus simply could have spoke. All he had to do was say, be clean, and that leper would have been clean. Yet to communicate that Jesus was the true cleansing agent of the world, Jesus touches that leper, and that leper becomes clean and healed. Jesus doesn't become unclean. Earlier in Luke, we see that people are bringing all their uh, sick friends and loved ones to Jesus so that he would be healed. And we have to imagine that some of those people would, would, would have been unclean. And yet Jesus touched all of them and he doesn't become unclean, they become clean. In Luke chapter 8, one of these famous stories of this woman with a discharge of blood for 12 years comes to Jesus. 
She had been ostracized because of her uncleanness from, from the community. She couldn't act in the temple or even synagogue worship. She couldn't participate in normal relations with others because of her uncleanness. And yet she knows if she can get to Jesus, Jesus can make her clean. But she can't bring herself to confront him one-on-one. Uh, -on -one. She knows she doesn't want to make the teacher unclean. She doesn't want to offend him or embarrass him or herself. So she thinks, if just in secret I can touch the fringe of his garment, then maybe I'll become clean. She sneaks in this congregation, this crowd. She touches just the fringe of his robe. And in a moment, that woman becomes clean. Jesus doesn't become unclean. Jesus calls her out from the crowd to to dignify her and to demonstrate that he's the cleansing agent. Later in that same chapter, Jesus goes to the, the bedside of a dead 12-year-old girl. To touch a dead body would have made somebody unclean. But Jesus goes and he clutches her hand. And he says, arise. And in a moment, that little girl is granted life. She becomes clean. Jesus doesn't become unclean. And friend, if you're here today and you're concerned about the holy perfection of God and you feel, I am so cast out of that. I could never have a relationship with a God who's that good, with a God who's that pure, with a God who's that exalted, and you would be right. For none of us belong in the presence of a holy God. But when we see God's holiness in Christ, the response is not for us to run away, but to run to him. For Christmas reveals that God's holiness is made known. It's brought near. So when we run to Jesus, he's the one who takes our uncleanliness. He's the one who takes our sin. And in him, we're given the righteousness of God. We're given holiness because of our affection, our love, our connection with the Holy One. Friend, in your lack of holiness, always run to Jesus to become holy. Hebrews chapter 13 says that it was the sacrifices that were taken outside the gate. They were taken outside the city. And Jesus is the one who was sacrificed outside the city for us. So that all who would trust him would be sanctified, would become holy. Because Jesus has taken our unholiness to himself. It's only through the gospel. It's only through what Jesus has done on the cross to die for our lack of holiness to die for our uncleanness. That Jesus, he still lived that perfect moral life as the God-man. He, he came God in flesh so that he might be the perfect one, so that he might earn our righteousness. He goes to the cross, not because of his lack of holiness, but because of ours. He dies for sinners, unclean sinners like us, so that all who trust him, repent of our sin and trust him are now granted his holiness. And righteousness, that's the good news of Christmas. That's the good news of Jesus. That's the only way we can be made holy. And now we might ask the question, so what do we do with that? How, do we, how does this communicable attribute of God then be reflected in our lives as the moon reflects the sun? See, when we trust in Jesus for our forgiveness, when we trust in Jesus for our holiness, we recognize our final point today is that we are made holy to pursue holiness. We are made holy to pursue holiness. And this is how this is reflected 
in our own lives today. So three final points of application as we think about God's holiness and seeing it reflected in our own lives. First, that we are given a holy identity. We're given a holy identity. Once we trust Christ, there's a radical transformation that goes on with us. Theologian Herman Bovink says it this way. He says, people and things only become sanctified or holy in relation to God by being chosen and set apart. See, this radical change of nature is promised in it's elected in, our, in, in God's choosing of us before the foundation of the world. In Ephesians chapter 1, verse 3, Paul writes, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. Our holiness has been chosen by God. He elects us. He calls us that we might share in his holiness. And he did it before the foundation of the world. And this is why Peter can say in 1 Peter chapter 1, this famous text, As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy for I am holy. Notice how Peter uses this father-child dynamic, this father-child relationship to communicate that our holiness should represent our father's holiness. It is a proud moment, usually, when a parent is told, your kid acts a lot like you. When they do something great and we get that comment, love that comment. And friends, in our holiness, we're living out our holy identity. Because of our relationship with God, he gives us a new identity so that we might reflect him as a child reflects a parent. We're given a holy identity so that we then can live holy lives. That's our second application point. We now have holy living in light of a holy identity. Notice that we are not told to live a holy life, to receive a holy identity. It's our holy identity that enables a holy life. If, if our status has radically changed, then we're able to live that out in an active way. This is one of the great promises of the new covenant. This is one of the great promises of the Old Testament. When the Old Testament says in Ezekiel 36, he says that there is coming day, there will come a day where I will completely deal with your lack of cleanliness. He goes, I will wash you. I will cleanse you. I will sprinkle you with water and radically change your heart. He says, I'll give you a heart of flesh where there's right now a heart of stone. I'll replace that. And then he says, I will place my spirit within you, causing you to obey all that I have commanded. The gift of the Holy Spirit, brothers and sisters, is the fulfillment of God's promise to us so that what we know we should do is also what we get to do. It's the privilege of obedience enabled by the Holy Spirit who's called the Holy Spirit so that he might enable holiness in our lives. Romans chapter 8 reflects this. It says the law of condemnation was never ever, ever meant to give life, but life through the Spirit is the one who can transform us, who can change us. He says by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh, he condemns sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. Brothers and sisters, as believers in Jesus Christ, he has given you the gift of his Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity, that he might dwell in you and enable you to obedience. Are we listening to the Spirit's conviction? 
Are we listening to a spirit-led conscience that we might obey him? Are we seeking to reject the passions of our flesh and be filled by the spirit who enables our holiness and righteousness? If the Christianity of my youth was concerned with separateness from the world that led to a form of legalism, my fear is that the Christianity of our day is a spirit of accommodation or assimilation where there's nothing distinct from us and the world. And brothers and sisters, we are called to live a holy life because of our holy identity enabled by the Holy Spirit. Is our sexual ethic marked by holiness? Are our words shaped by a desire for holiness and not vulgarity? Are our eyes captivated by holy things? Are we submitting to the Spirit's work of conviction and leading us in righteousness? We live a holy life in light of our holy identity. And finally, our holy identity and our holy life lead us to a holy mission, a holy mission. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9 says it this way, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. That's all identity claims. But notice, we're not just supposed to be this holy nation, this royal priesthood set apart to be able to say, way to go us. Let's stay back from the rest of those unclean sinners. No, we're a holy nation, a royal priesthood, a people for his own possession, so that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. As holy people, we were never supposed to just avoid the world so that we might just remain in our own holy huddle. We are called as a holy people to remain unstained by the world, but to proclaim the goodness of God to the unclean world who is only made holy, who's only brought into that through a right relationship with Jesus. We are called to a holy mission, brothers and sisters. We are given this holy status so that we might proclaim what Jesus has done in us to change us, to purify us, to make us holy so that we might declare to others that Jesus lived the perfect life we couldn't that he died the death for unclean sinners like you and me so that all who trust him are brought into that. We are given a new identity so that we might declare. Christmas declares that we can share in the extraordinary holiness of God. If you embrace that identity, are, are, are you seeking to live out that holy calling of a life of holiness that reflects the, the one who called us? And are you on a holy mission set apart to declare the excellencies of him who called us out? See, what started in the garden as a perfect uh, relationship with God and man is something that we actually get to look forward to in the future. God has always been pursuing that relationship with unclean sinners. He, he, created, he created a law that, that, that communicated how we can become clean. He sent his son who died in our place so that we might be clean and he's promising a future a new heavens and a new earth that's better than the garden it's a renewed holy of holies where we don't just come in and out once a year but that holy of holies that holy city that holy earth is where God's people will dwell with him forever where he says I will be their God they shall be my people and I will dwell with them forever and ever. 
God brings his holiness to us now through Christ so that we might just get a glimpse of it. But friends, our future hope is a holy city where we dwell with God perfectly forever in that holiness. Let's pray. God, you are holy, holy, holy. The whole earth is full of your glory and we join in that song today because it's just so wonderful. God, and we are so grateful that you would, that you would send your one and only holy son to take on our uncleanness, to take on our lack of holiness so that we might be drafted in to that holy one to reflect you. Enable us, Lord, through your spirit, we pray, to honor you with our lives of holiness, that we would have the privilege of representing you. Thanks, Holy Spirit, that you are the one who imparts those gifts to us to transform our heart that we might live for you. God, as we worship now, fill us with the grandeur and awe that you are in your holiness. We look forward to one day being able to behold you completely. In Jesus' name, amen.